How y'all doing? Good, good. It took you a second, but it's all good. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 today. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up there, Matthew chapter 6. Um, we are nearing the end. We, next week is the end of our series called Y'all, where we are talking about what it means to be a community. We're assuming that when the Bible says you, it often means y'all. The Bible was written to a community, for a community, to be followed in community, interpreted in community. The church is, by definition, a community. And as we've gone through this series, we've talked about what it means to be a community, how as individuals, as married couples, as people with unique gifts, we are all part of a community and we're working towards a mission together. Last week, we talked about what the posture of the church community is towards those who who are not in the church community, towards those who do not believe. And today, this is our last actual sermon in the series. Next week, I'm excited because we're going to have a panel of people from our kids' ministry, counseling ministry, and fold groups ministry talking about the ways that community is lived out in the various aspects of our lives. So in this last sermon of the Y'all series, we're going to be talking about where our hope is as a church. Where are we going And what is our vocation? Does that sound good? What's our job in the world? So to do that, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. This is a passage that we have turned to often as the fold. And we will continue to turn to often as Jesus teaches us how to pray. But not only as he teaches us how to pray, but he really orients us around his kingdom and his kingdom values. So Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse 9. Jesus says this. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, But deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And before we jump into the sermon today, we're going to be kind of uh, wading into the deep end conceptually this morning, talking about some complicated things. I just want to forewarn you this is going to be a dense sermon. But I think, it's, I think it's really, really important stuff. There are some tough questions for us to wrestle with as we go into this topic today. But I think they're very important questions. So are you all ready to jump in the deep end? That was not encouraging. <laughs> you all ready to jump in the deep end? That was better. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we are here for you. We thank you that we have seen your image in the people we've shaken hands with and laughed with and talked to this morning. We thank you that we have sung your truth and heard it in one another's voices. And now, as we go to your word, and we ask that we would come to know you more deeply, God, I ask, as we always do, that what is my ideas or my perceptions, what's just for me, I ask that that would be noticed so it can be rejected but what is from you and faithful to your word, that it would echo in our hearts that we would be like you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. 
Well, this series is called Y'all, so I figured before the end of it, we should do kind of a nod to Southern culture. Um, so I, I am born and raised in the South, as hillbilly as it gets. Um, and for those of you who, uh, who did not grow up in the South, um, you didn't grow up in a part of the country where like, you can throw a rock in every direction and break a church window, then this might not make a ton of sense. But if you grew up in the South then, uh, and you grew up in church or you have ever like, been in a church, like you went to a wedding in a church or you went to a funeral in a church or something like that, then you've probably heard this phrase before. How many of you have heard the phrase, you can't say that in church, right? Or you can't do that. This is a church. You've heard somebody say something like that, right? I was a pastor's kid, right? Which means my whole life was basically a church, right? So everything I did was, you can't do that in church. It's pretty much my whole life. So I now have a kid and am a pastor. So I am passing on the family blessing. It's wonderful. Uh, (laughs) It's all right. We know some good counselors. So yeah. (laughs) Or have you heard something like this? That guy was in church And he didn't catch fire when he walked in the door? Any of you heard somebody say something like that? Yeah, okay, I've heard that. He didn't burst into flames when he walked through the threshold? Yeah, very, very southern thing to say. If you didn't grow up in the south, then you can probably just be glad that you didn't grow up under that sort of oppression. But uh, it's funny to me how naturally we determine who and what is welcome where. You ever notice that? How natural it is for us as humans to think that something can be welcome in this place, but not in that place. As if God is like, well, you got me. My jurisdiction ends right at the door. (laughs) How easy it is for us to imagine that certain people, certain characteristics, certain pasts, certain stories are only welcome in certain places. There are certain places that are holy and the unholy doesn't belong there. As a culture now, our reaction to that has largely been to say, well, that means everything is welcome everywhere. Everything's welcome in any place. And we know that that doesn't really make sense either. If we follow that train of thought to its natural trajectory, we know that Really, not everything is welcome everywhere. There there has to be some sort of boundary. So we wind up in this middle ground trying to figure it out, trying to figure out what's welcome where, moving back and forth between licentiousness and legalism, just kind of vacillating as a culture. But this truth actually goes all the way back to the beginning. It's foundational to the story of Scripture. We see that in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God made humans. He made humans in his image for relationship with him, to be in his presence. There was a sacred space that God and human beings walked in together. God made Adam and Eve and he put them in a garden and he walked with them in the cool of the day. They were in a sacred place together. But almost immediately... We see in Genesis 3 that sin enters the story and all of a sudden something is not welcome in that space anymore. Immediately, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden because something that can't be in that sacred space now exists and the space is separated. 
the relationship is broken. Where heaven and earth met in the garden, now there's heaven and there's earth. And earth is the place where sin runs free, where we are the primary influencers, where we break things and we dirty things up. You see the same idea played out in the Old Testament in the temple and in the tabernacle. You see God instruct a temple and a tabernacle to be built and God's presence is there, but God's presence is in the very center. And there is ritual and there is rule and there is ceremony and there is layer upon layer separating the normal from the sacred. You couldn't have accidentally stumbled your way into the holiest place in the temple. It couldn't have happened. There was layer and layer and layer. And even those who went in had to go through multiple rituals and purification rites to even be able to enter into the most holy place. There was heaven and there was earth. They were separate. And one could not easily enter into the other. And that's where we get this language that's also become common and religious, but it's rooted in the Old Testament. When someone sinned and broke certain laws, they would be called unclean, which calls to mind this idea that sin is dirty, it's polluting something, and that there's a place where that can't be. There's a place that can't be polluted. You see this very clearly in Isaiah when the prophet, I believe it's in chapter 6, when he encounters the Lord, it says he encountered the Lord high and lifted up. And Isaiah's response to this glory is, woe is me, which is basically like, oh no, this is behead. He says, I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. There's a separation There is heaven and there's earth. And they can't really mix. But it is into this reality that Jesus teaches us to pray. And he teaches us to pray first off our father. Which is an interesting thing to call someone that you can't go near, isn't it? Our father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So into this separation, God teaches us to pray a connection. Now, I've painted the Old Testament with a broad brush intentionally. Because because of our knowledge of ourselves and our own sin and our own shame, when we read the Old Testament and we read sin and law and unclean and purifying rites and rituals, our kind of natural reaction is to assume that God is keeping us out of his presence because we can't be there. When we read about the garden and Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden, our natural reaction is to kind of assume that God kicked us out of the garden because he didn't want to be with us anymore. But actually, if you read the story, God removed Adam and Eve from the garden for our good so that we would not bear the full consequence of our sin. 
He removed Adam and Eve from the garden to protect them. And when God made all of the rules and rituals and law and ceremony so that he could come dwell in the temple, he wasn't making ceremony to keep us out of his presence. He was creating a way so that his presence could dwell with us. All of the rule and all of the ritual and all of the ceremony was creating an opportunity for heaven to dwell within the people. For the rule of God to take up root in and among the people. God was making a way. And that's what we see in Jesus. That's what we see in Jesus is that Jesus is God dealing with sin so that we can be reconciled again. There was something that was separate. We are separate because of sin. But rather than God saying you must be separate because of your sin, God says I will deal with your sin so that we can be reconciled. And we are reconciled through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through faith in the resurrection of Jesus. What was separated is now brought back together in Christ. And Jesus teaches us how to pray the coming salvation of Jesus. What was separated is brought together. We are reconciled so that we do not have to get our lives right before we can come into the presence of God. Rather, sin is dealt with so that in the presence of God, the Holy Spirit can make us right. So that we can be aligned with him and learn more deeply to follow and obey him. Jesus teaches us to pray the coming salvation. He teaches us to pray what was separate, united. Now, because of this natural discomfort that we feel. Here's the thing. That's probably not surprising to any of you. None of you looked surprised when I said Jesus came to reconcile us. That's not really surprising news in the church. That's good news, but we talk about it all the time. We understand that sin separates us from God and that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are reconciled. But it might leave us with the question of, well, why do I still feel so unwelcome in the church? Why do I still feel like there's so much to hide? Why do I still feel like I have to live up to some sort of standard to be in, to be welcomed? Why is there still so much hypocrisy in the church? These might be questions that would last even though we know Christ came to reconcile us. It's interesting that this sense of division, this separation, not only affects how comfortable we feel in the church and in the community of God, it's also made its way into how we view God making everything right in the end. Most of us in modern Christianity, our perspective of someday when God makes everything right is a little bit like this. Someday we will escape earth and we will go to heaven. This place is bad and broken, it's marred by sin, relationships are toxic. God can't stand sin, so someday he will take us away from here so that we can dwell with him in eternity. And our imagination of eternity is that someday we'll be floating around in the sky. Somebody's having a good time outside. Is that someone will be, we will be floating around in the sky with God in heaven, in eternity, in this spiritual reality. Because our imagination says they're separate. There's heaven and there's earth. And they can't go together. So for God to make everything right, he has to bring us out of earth and into heaven. 
And that's oftentimes what we imagine. And that's historically called Gnosticism. A lot of theologians say that it's the greatest threat to the modern church. I said we're going into the conceptual deep end this morning. Gnosticism is the idea that the only thing that matters is the spiritual. That someday we will leave all the physical behind and we will just be spiritually with God forever. And that what we do in this life doesn't really matter. And it often plays out exactly how you see it play out in this culture, in our culture today. Which is that we either imagine that nothing we do in this life really matters as long as we just believe the right thing about Jesus. Because this world's dying anyway and someday we'll go to a different one. So what we do doesn't matter. We don't pursue much transformation. We just follow the basic rules and believe the right things so that someday we can get in. Or it plays itself out in an extreme legalism because we imagine that this world is so bad that any mistake we make in this world will keep us out of the other world. So we live in fear of what is to come because we don't want to get stuck in this world and miss out on the next one. But Jesus teaches us to pray that what was separate is brought back together. Jesus teaches us to pray, not your kingdom come in heaven so that someday when I get there, I can experience it. Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because this is so important. This is so important. This is one of my many soapboxes that I carry around all the time, but it's so important. Christian hope is not the hope of escape from this world. It's the hope of resurrection. We do not believe that God is going to throw this world in the garbage and start over someday. We believe that we will be resurrected, brought to life again. We believe that we were made as human beings, physical and spiritual at the same time, and that this is how God intended us, that we will be resurrected to see what heaven and earth is like. This is the Christian hope. That's why Paul talked about the things you do in this life mattering in the next life. He talked about how some of the work you do lasting like gold, tried by fire, but some of it being wood and straw that would be burned up and not survive. It's almost like the things we do in this life actually matter. Because through Jesus, what was separate is reconciled. And through Christ we have a glimpse of what is to come. This is the Christian hope. The theologian N.T. Wright, one of the preeminent scholars on uh, the New Testament in the modern world, said this, it's going to be up on the screen, in his book on the Lord's Prayer called The Lord and His Prayer. He said, Heaven and earth are the two interlocking arenas of God's good world. Heaven is God's space, where God's writ runs and God's future purposes are waiting in the wings. Earth is our world, our space. Think of the vision at the end of the book of Revelation. It isn't about humans being snatched up from earth to heaven. The holy city, New Jerusalem, comes down from heaven to earth. God's space and ours are finally married, integrated at last, This is what we pray when we pray, your kingdom come. Jesus teaches us to pray now the future that we hope for. Now, you might be thinking, that's cool. I'm glad that Jesus reconciles us. And it's wonderful to know that we have a hope that's resurrection, that's not just escape. But I thought we were talking about the church. Good question. I'm glad you asked. The church is a window community between earth and heaven. We exist 
as God's people praying his prayer with a foot in each world, opening a window to what resurrection is like. We live in the world, as many commentators have pointed out, knowing that in this world his kingdom hasn't come. Sometimes theologians call it the already not yet kingdom of God. We already live in the victory of Jesus, but it is not yet fully realized. We live in the reality of this world, but we also live in the, in the presence of God being formed by the Spirit. So we live with a foot in each place, polishing the window between so that the world around us can see what the kingdom of God is like. Why do we live in community? Because our world is lonely and full of broken relationships. That is reality. Our world is full of maneuvering and backbiting and bitterness and unforgiveness. So we as the window community commit to step beyond the backbiting, put aside the political divisions, refuse to let the things that create enemies in this world create enemies of us and live in community even though it's difficult. Why? Because it's a window, not perfectly, but it's a window of what eternity looks like. You see what I mean? We live as a window. Why do we pursue spiritual disciplines? Because our spiritual disciplines are a window. When you practice solitude and silence, what you are doing is cleaning a window, a window that says in this world there are so many voices that tell me who I am. There is so much noise and it's so busy and it's exhausting and the rat race is pulling at me all the time. But you take a day of solitude to say the rat race might exist, but it doesn't rule me. I find my identity in Christ. I find stillness to hear his voice in the midst of all of the voices around me. Why do we confess as followers of Jesus? When we confess, we polish the window because we say, yes, I live in this world. I have sinned and fallen short, but I am not defined and ruled by my sin. I will not keep it secret to allow the church to be a place of hypocrisy where the windows are closed. I will confess it so that it can be acknowledged that forgiveness is my reality and I am growing ever more like the kingdom of heaven. So we confess and we repent. We repent to tell the world not that we are perfect and have no sin, but to acknowledge that when we fall short, we are not living perfectly, but we are growing more fully into obedience and Christ-likeness. We polish the window. Why do we pray? Because we live in a world with needs, but we talk to the one who has the answer, and we are the window in between. We acknowledge both worlds. Why do we fast? Because we live in a world where there are people who are hungry and we have unfulfilled longings. So we allow those longings to go unfulfilled so that we can testify to ourselves and the world around us that that longing is fulfilled in Christ and nothing else. And why do we feast and we eat good food? Because in this world, our celebration is incomplete, but there will be a wedding supper of the lamb, as scripture tells us, in which we will feast in the presence of Jesus and everything will be made right. We're a window community. Do you see what I mean? This is our hope and this is our vocation. We as the people of God fight, not perfectly, but we pursue living in community, obedient to Jesus in his way, because in doing so, we live with a foot in each world, knowing that this world is not perfect, but our hope is coming as Jesus comes and makes everything right. Amen? Now, you need to see that this isn't just what we do in this room. It's not just what we do as gathered Christians. But if you're a doctor, then you do window work because you live in a world where bodies need healing, but you have faith in a world where everything is made right. 
If you build houses, you do window work. Because we live in a world where people need homes, but there is a time coming when we are all at home in the Lord. Do you see? If you're an artist, then you tell beautiful stories in a world often lacking beauty because there is a beautiful story to be told. The work we do, the vocation that we hold. Listen, if you cook great food or if you work on cars, then what you do is you acknowledge the problems in this world are answered by the hope of that world. When we do so in the name of Jesus, bringing good and beauty into the world, we do window work, polishing the window in between so that through our lives, some might see that there is a hope beyond what we can see, that there actually is a life where forgiveness and generosity and community reign. We do window work. This is our vocation and this is our hope. Now, before we close, and this is going to go a little bit long, sorry, I, I never want to overlook the difficult question that lies on the shadow side of a positive statement. So while we're talking about our hope for resurrection and our vocation as Christians, I believe it would be remiss of us to not acknowledge at least that there is a different future for those who do not follow Jesus. And this conversation brings up a few questions. One very practical and a couple of ethical questions. And I want to spend the rest of my time this morning attempting to deal with those questions. And I just want you to know that these are questions that Christians, that theologians have wrestled with for thousands of years. There is a wide variety of answers to these. The answers I'm giving, I believe, are sound but they're certainly not the only ones that if you hear these answer and you these answers and you think that's part of it then know that there's there's more and it's worth wrestling i'm not attempting to give you an exhaustive answer i'm simply attempting to show that the questions can be answered and you should also know that most of the most difficult questions we engage in existentially as humans might have logically satisfying answers, but they don't have emotionally satisfying answers. So I can talk to you about eternity in a way that we can all agree is logical and justified, but it doesn't necessarily make us feel better. And it's okay to acknowledge that. Sound good? All right. So here we go. For those of us who our faith is in Jesus, we are part of what would be called the church or the people of God. The fold is a local expression, a local church. But we as followers of Jesus are part of the global church, the people reconciled to God, the people whose hope is in Christ. Our hope is in resurrection, is in everything being made right in Christ. Because though we are separated from sin, The death and resurrection of Jesus paid the price, dealt with the gap, paid the cost of our sin. There are lots of analogies for what that means and how it works, but what we know is that we are separated, we are living in our sins, but through Christ, we are reconciled to God, and our hope is in him and in his resurrection. 
Now listen, I wish every once in a while I find a biblical truth or a theology that is clear and I cannot find a way to make it not true, but I wish I could. And I wish that I could tell you faithfully reading and studying scripture. I wish I could tell you that I think everybody gets into the resurrection, whether they want to or not. And I have to tell you that for as much as I wish that were true, I could not maintain faithfulness to scripture and to church history and preach that. Scripture seems to clearly teach that there is an eternity apart from God for those that do not choose him. Scripture seems to teach us that God values deeply our free will, that it is something that is intrinsically part of being human, that without it, we are no longer human. And we would be robbing us of his image, robbing us of what we are. And he will not use force. He will not compromise our free will. He does not do that. And what that means is that there are those who choose. We believe that the Holy Spirit is faithfully ministering to everyone, both sending us as missionaries and present everywhere we go, working in the world. We don't know what that looks like, but we believe, as Scripture says in Hebrews, that it is God's desire that all should come to repentance and that none should perish. God does not send people to hell. Phil has said this many times, and it's beautiful. He says no one goes to hell except for over Jesus' dead body, and that is 100% true. It is not God's desire that anyone should die unreconciled. But he will not co-opt our free will. So there is a choice to be made in which we can reject the saving invitation of Jesus. And that is called by Christians, by church history, hell. In Greek, in the New Testament, it's usually the Greek word Gehenna. And oftentimes in the scripture, the way that that is referenced is in the language of exile from the Old Testament, meaning there is a place where God's people dwell, but there is also a place where those who continue to choose sin and do not receive the invitation of Christ, do not accept the invitation of God, are outside of the place. Remember, we're talking about separation, that they have refused to come in, and they are outside of the place. There are lots of descriptors in Scripture of what hell is like. Some are described as fiery. There are lots of analogies. We have had Christian theologians and artists and thinkers trying to describe hell for 2,000 years. They've given us everything from Dante's Inferno (laughs) to C.S. Lewis and the Great Divorce. Here's the truth. We don't know what hell is going to be like. What we have in Scripture are analogies that help us understand. What we do know is that it is not desirable, that it is a place where we are cut off from the reconciliation of God and where sin is what's left. We are left in our sins. It is a place of what we would call punishment or consequences of sin in which we do not accept the forgiveness of Jesus. Once again, we don't know exactly what it's like. We do know that it is not pleasant. It is described in scripture in language like fire and pain. Though we do not know exactly what that looks like or feels like. 
is worth noting. Hell is not a place where the devil with a pointy tail pokes you in a cauldron with a pitchfork. (laughs) That is not what hell is like. That is what cartoons are like. (laughs) It is worth noting that hell is not what happens when uh, God turns us over to the devil. The one person we know is intended to go to hell is the devil, is our spiritual enemy. Uh, He will be there receiving punishment, not ruling anything or torturing anyone. All right? Even in punishment, God isn't turning you over to be tortured by the devil. There is a place of separation. We do not know what it's like exactly, but we do know that there is a hope in Jesus, and we are called to make disciples of King Jesus of all nations because of this great hope that we have. We are not called to be motivated by fear. We are called to be motivated by the hope and love of Jesus. But it would be unfaithful of us to ignore both sides of the conversation about eternity. We have to talk about both, even in a church mostly full of millennials. Now, that's the practical question. It also raises two kind of ethical questions. I'm going to try to answer these quickly. The first one would be something like, well, then why, if God's not going to, if God's not going to compromise our free will, then why doesn't he just reveal himself? Why doesn't he just step out of heaven and say, I'm Jesus, follow me? right? Why wouldn't he do that? And that's a good question. That's a question worth asking. And that's a question that Jesus was actually asked. The Pharisees came to him and they said, if you're the Messiah, will you give us a sign? Interestingly enough, Jesus had been giving lots of signs. He had been healing lots of people. They hadn't seen it with their own eyes, so they were asking for another one. And Jesus said, and I'm not getting this quote exactly right, it's not in front of me, but if you don't believe the sign of Jonah, then you're not going to believe any other signs. The sign of Jonah, most theologians have interpreted to mean that Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and he was spit out. Jesus was in the belly of the earth in the grave for three days and he was resurrected. It's a good question. It's a valid question to say, well, why doesn't God just reveal himself and make himself clearly known? And the answer, logical though maybe not emotionally satisfying, is that he did. And the question we would keep asking if we are to say, why don't you make yourself known, is how many times would he have to resurrect for us to believe him? If he had resurrected in 1880 and we had an old tintype photo of it, would we believe it? If he had resurrected in 2019 and we caught it on video, would we believe it? Right? There's debate about the moon landing. There's debate about vaccines. There's debate about every controversial political thing that you can think of right now. Do we have any sort of uniformity as human beings on what we believe about things. Even if we're all looking at the exact same evidence, the answer is no. Jen and I met uh, a girl in, when we were in India, she was from Israel, she told us, I do not believe in the supernatural. If I saw a miracle, if heaven opened and God revealed himself to me face to face, I wouldn't believe it. I don't want to. I would just assume that there is a scientific explanation that I don't currently understand. So Jesus has, and he actually did at the first, earliest point in human history where it could be well documented. I would offer, I am not an academic, um, but I would offer that Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is as historically viable as the life of Caesar or the siege of Rome. 
or any other major historical event that we have from that era. You have to be willing to take religious sources as sources, which some people don't like to do. But when you're talking about the Son of God, all of the sources that believe he actually rose from the dead are religious. Because <laughs> most people who believe he rose from the dead follow him. It's well documented. Now, Here's the second ethical question. First, why wouldn't God just open up heaven and reveal himself? He resurrected. The second ethical question would be, well, then why does God not come back now? If sin is in the world right now and causing harm, and we all know about it, and if I can just be honest with you, I would tell you that when I was younger, the idea of hell really bothered me. The more I have learned about what human beings do to one another, the less the idea of hell bothers me, honestly. Um, because we will create anything that we could call hell we have created on earth for one another. I would say that the offense of the gospel is that the person I would send to hell is offered the same cross as me. That is offensive to me, if I can be honest. There are people I don't want to be in heaven with, I don't want to be in eternity with, and I will be there with them. If they accept, or if they have, some of them I know have, accepted the truth of Jesus and his resurrection. But we would ask the question, why doesn't he just come back now and end the pain and suffering? No more sin can be committed on the world, no more pain and suffering. And and here is, once again, one answer. I want you to imagine with me that I am the king of South Carolina. I've got a crown, I've got a coronation ceremony, it's great. I am Sir Clifton, king of South Carolina. (laughs) Clifton's what the C stands for. Um, That stays here. (laughs) Uh, And the podcast. (laughs) Um, So I'm, I'm king of South Carolina. But imagine that there are some people who don't want me to be king. Even though I'm rightfully king, they don't want me to be king. And they are fighting against my kingship right? They're doing everything they can, right? They are fi- they're hiding in the hollers. They're over in cow pens, probably just hiding, fighting. Um, they don't want me to be king. And I want you to imagine then that I, I gave a pardon, a kingly pardon. And I said, any of my enemies who says Clifton is king, they can be forgiven and they'll be just normal citizens, right? No record, nothing. Imagine that I said that, but they're still fighting. You might ask the question to me, why not just stop them? You got a military, you can do it, just go squash the rebellion. But you would understand that when I squash the rebellion, I eliminate the option for any of them to receive the pardon. If I halt the work of my enemy, then I cannot convert my enemy to my friend. So we do not, it is hard for us to understand why God tarries, why he waits, why he allows pain to continue in the world. We understand his, we understand free will. We understand all of that. It doesn't make us feel better and that's okay. It does not make me feel better that there are atrocities happening in the world today. Just free will doesn't make me feel any better about it, even though I find it to be logically compelling. But we know that it is the mercy of Jesus that he would extend one more day before he returns in his reign and rule. Because it is one more day 
for those who are his enemies to receive the pardon of his cross and come into his kingdom as children. It is one more day for those who are lost to be found. It's one more day. You might be familiar with the beautiful story of the father in Luke 15 who was betrayed by his son. His son ran away. His son wished he was dead, but the father waited for his son to return and then ran to him and threw a party. It's one more day for the son to come home every day that God waits. And that is the offensive mercy of God. I would rather him bring justice today, but he would rather offer my enemies mercy. So this is why we are a window community. We are a community that does the hard, difficult work of embodying the reconciliation and forgiveness of the kingdom of God in this life on this earth. We are a confessing, praying, generous, forgiving community, not doing it perfectly, often not even close, but confessing and repenting when we do so that one more person might receive the mercy of Jesus. They might see that there is a different kingdom and there is a different way and be welcomed into the family of God. We must be a window community. This is who we are, not out of fear, but out of the joyful hope that our king reigns, that in his reign there is peace and there is joy and there is hope without end. And we invite all who will, all who will say yes into his kingdom by cleaning the window and showing them what it's like. In closing, I want to read you a passage. I said we're going long today. It's been long. I'm still going. I'm going to read you a passage from N.T. Wright's book, The Lord and His Prayer. The church is to be the advanced guard of the great act of forgiveness of sins that God intends to accomplish for the entire cosmos. Justice and peace, truth and mercy will one day reign in God's world and the church, who could almost be defined as the people who pray the Lord's Prayer is to model and pioneer the way of life, which is actually the only way of life, because it is the way of forgiveness. To pray this prayer is therefore in its largest meaning to pray for the world. Forgive us our trespasses. Lift up our eyes for a moment, away from your own sins and those of your immediate neighbor, and see the world as a whole, groaning in travail, longing for peace and justice. See the endless tangles in which politicians and power brokers get themselves, and the endless human misery which results. Put put yourself in the shoes of the peasant who has lost husband and home and faces a winter in the snow, or of the politician who discovers that he's in too deep and that all the options open are evil ones, of men of violence who have forgotten that there was a different way to live. Collect all these images and roll them into one, that of a young Jewish boy off in the far country feeding the pigs, and then with your courage in both hands, say, forgive us our trespasses. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned. But as you say it in your prayer, with the whole world of pain in view, allowing your heart to see the next scene, with the father doing the unthinkable, the disgraceful thing, and running down the road to meet his muddled and muddy son. As we close, I want to invite you to pray with me. I'm going to pray the Lord's Prayer. If you know it, you're welcome to pray it out loud with me. If not, no pressure. Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I always combine the NIV and King James when I try to quote it myself. Let's stand and worship together.